Hi, Shannon Waller here and welcome to Inside Strategic Coach with Dan Sullivan. Dan, we were just chatting and you mentioned that you have two personal axioms that really guide you in terms of how you live your life, which I found completely fascinating and I would love to talk about them some more. So can you please talk about axiom number one, really, which has to do with the fact that you don't have to do any research because the people you're talking to already have the answers. Yeah. So um, it's probably early life good luck that I can say here. So, you know, just give a brief description. I was born in 1944. I wasn't born on a farm, but very early I grew up on a farm in northern Ohio. My birth placement, I'm a number five in a family of seven children. I'm a fifth child. And it just so happened that by the time you're two or three years old and you're starting to explore and wonder, I just had no playmates. So I had no peer playmates until I got to first grade, first grade school. And that was a six mile drive. So it wasn't neighborhood, but I was very alert. I was very curious. I was a happy kid. I was very interactive with my parents. And my parents would take me everywhere, and all I encountered was adults. And somewhere along the line, I cracked the code on dealing with adults. I think probably I was like five years old, a year before I went to school. And what I learned was that if you asked adults a certain question, they would talk nonstop, okay? And one early question I found really did the job was, asking them that when you were my age, so I'm talking to someone who's maybe 40 or 50 years old, and I'd say, when you were my age, I'm five years old, when you were my age, what was going on in your world? Okay. And all of a sudden they said, what a question, you know? And they're talking about 35 years before, so it might be the 19 teens. And they said, oh, the war was going on and everything like that. And then I'd ask them questions about their answers. You know, well, what was that like? And then they had the First World War. They had the Spanish flu epidemic. Then they had the wild 20s, you know, when a lot of new technologies took hold. And then they had the Great Depression. And then they had the Second World War. So massive, you know, just massive experiences. So I just realized that anywhere that my parents took me, they took me shopping, they'd take me on social visits. My father would take me to feed stores. He would take me to seed stores, tractor stores. And I'd always run into an adult and I'd interact with him. I developed a reputation. So my parents would hear, they said, boy, that little kid of yours, boy, you know, he's really, really interesting. You know, he knows a lot. Well, actually I didn't know anything. And that was the whole point, you know, and I realized that it developed a lifetime axiom. So an axiom is a Greek word and it's a philosophical term. And what it means is that what you know is so self-evident that you don't need any proof of it. Okay, so my axiom with this is that I don't have to know any of the answers because everybody else has the answers, but they can't access their answers unless they have my questions and that the key to life isn't in the answers. The key to life is in the questions. That's what I was discovering at five or six years old. And now I'm 77 and the entire strategic coach empire (laughs) universe 
is simply based on that first absent. We don't need to know any of the answers because all the answers are in the heads of our entrepreneurial clients, but they can't access their answers unless we ask them our questions. So that's an axiom. And that's such a perfect explanation of how you work and how the program works. It's kind of a wonderful assumption to be able to work with people on. And it kind of bypasses the normal, I don't know, the normal way that people think they have to do business. They have to know a lot and then impart that into other people. But you're like, no, I just have to know the right questions to ask. Mm -hmm. And you have a whole series of questions that you ask that are incredibly insightful and help people really gain traction in their own thinking and their own progress. Yeah, and the questions are really about their experiences as they see them, you know, and they're the only person who's an expert on their experiences, but they're not an expert on actually putting their experiences together, okay? And that's largely what my questions are about, you know. If you think about where you are right now and you go back 10 years, you know, what would be the three areas where you think you've made the greatest progress over the last 10 years? That person has never put this experience with their past experience before and never would unless I asked them the question. But I didn't have to know what the experiences were. I just have a knowledge that they have an experience that can be compared and measured against each other and that they'll think new thoughts as a result of this. The other thing is that Questions about human experience are timeless. Right. I mean, if I went back to Rome, ancient Rome, I was teleported, time machine back, and, you know, I could somehow speak the language. Am I, I'm in the marketplace in Rome. You know, I could interact with a merchant who's got a stand or a shop there. And I said, how is this year compared to, you know, last year? Oh, geez, you know, this and this and this and can't stand the regulations and the taxes and, you know, and everything else. And we got interruptions in the supply chain and everything, you know, and I've heard about this fever that's, you know, you got to watch out, you know, and everything like that. You know, human experience tends to be constant. So if you get a handle on the kinds of experiences that are really important to people to compare with each other, you're set for life. Okay, and then you just have more and more examples to fine tune the questions you have. But answers are seasonal, they're like a fashion. You know, when people stock up on answers, you know, cutting edge interest, it's all about answers that have a shelf life. You know, the answers are good for 90 days and there's businesses where the answers are good for seconds. You know, they're big data, you know, the latest data on this. Well, that information it will be like last week's leftovers in five minutes, you know, and everything like that. I just don't have the nervous system to compete on the level of answers. So I've just spent my whole life just focused on mastering really, really great questions that allow other people to get enormous value out of their own experience. Dan, I just wanted to say this again. Questions about human experience are timeless. Answers have a shelf life. That is just such a great way to summarize that. Just for fun, before we go on to axiom number two, what are some of those other questions? You know, it's like asking people about their experience. I'm just kind of curious what the next couple of questions are, just for fun. Yeah, what are the three biggest failures that seem totally negative to you when they happen, which later turned out to be 
great discoveries and breakthroughs. And the person says, wow, wow. And I have to tell you, you can tell the moment you've asked the question, they're just going through their memory banks or picking up, well, I had this one, I had this one, you know. I was involved in a relationship when I was 18 years old, and I thought this was going to be it at 18. And she just abandoned me, and I was just devastated for two years. Then about 20 years later, I went back to a high school reunion. She was there, and I said, oh, I'm glad I missed that bullet. (laughs) Yep. They had never thought about that in their life. Yet it was a huge experience. And now updating their understanding of that failure or that thing was very useful to them, you know. Mm -hmm. I love that. You have so many great questions that are just have people reflect, but then as you said, integrate their experience together in new ways, and then they're able to take those lessons into the future. Well, the other thing is, you know, it's another insight, you know, it's an axiom, you know, that we could add to that, but what people call their past is made up (laughs) and what people call their future is made up okay and what i mean by that is that you have certain events from your past that are not made up you know things did happen and you didn't make up the events but your interpretation of what the events meant was made up okay and you can change your interpretations about anything in your past and when you reinterpret a past event, for example, that may have seemed like a worthless experience, and then you found that it was actually valuable. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you're equipped with something important now that can be applied to your future, because the future is also made up. And I think it's one of the most difficult realities for anyone to accept that the past that they feel so powerfully about is made up, that they made up the story. And that's also going to be true about their future. Mm-hmm. Once you do have that insight, though, there's a bit of freedom there that wasn't before. Yeah, I think there is a freedom, but it's a scary freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the sense, because if the past isn't real, I didn't say it wasn't real. I just said it was made up. <laughs> I said, you're the one who's saying that made up isn't real. I said, I think made up is totally real. Okay. And the reason why you made it up is to make it even more real, Mm -hmm. you know, and the moment why you would change it is to make it even more real. But what I'm saying is that you're the reality creator in your life. Mm. You know, I mean, a lot of people want freedom to do whatever they want to do, but at the same time, they want somebody to blame why it didn't work. Yep. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah. So, Dan, this really leads us into axiom number two, which has to do with your thought that none of this was created with you in mind. Tell me more. What I notice is, and it's more from uh, observation over seven decades, you know, that people have a lot of things that bother them about their daily lives or, you know, the situation where they live, the circumstances which they're living in, and it's been multiplied exponentially by social media and by the speed with which we can communicate with each other worldwide in a matter of seconds about things that are happening. And people are bothered by an amazing number of things. 
And I find I'm not bothered by very much. And I think the reason is that somewhere along the line, it may have been I'm a fifth child, and so everything's already been used up. <laughs> you know, all the available space and you know, has been used up by older siblings by the time you come along. And I always had this sense right from the beginning of life that nothing in the world was designed with me in mind. And fortunately, I was born into circumstances where there, you know, there was enough safety and there was enough support, but it wasn't designed for me. It was just that I lived in a good place on the planet and, you know, was born in a good time, you know, had good parents and lots of interesting things to, you know, keep myself occupied with and everything else. But I found that by freeing myself that there's nothing in the world that was designed with me in mind, then I have no basis for a complaint about things aren't the way that I wanted, okay? Mm-hmm. And what it does, on the one hand, it kind of frees me from being annoyed and it frees me from being bothered. But on the other hand, since nothing was created with me in mind, then I can do anything I want with my circumstances and with my experiences. And nobody has any say about me doing things differently or experimenting with different ways of doing it. Because since none of it was designed for me, I don't have any responsibility for it. Mm. It's just the embodiment, Dan, of a no entitlement attitude, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being upset or bothered or sad about that or something. You're like, oh, okay, in that case, I can have all the freedom I want to arrange the circumstances to better suit me. So you really took it as an opportunity for, as you said, not feeling responsible for it, but actually just using it as a creative, like raw material almost. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that having no complaints about the way things are, the reward for that, it just gives you a sense of complete freedom that you can more or less rearrange things to suit you, you know, Uh and, you know, and I think I've done that, you know, I think I've done that very, very much. And the other thing is that I've got the right to do that, but so does everybody else. And the Uh only thing that prevents other people from feeling that they're free is that they think that they were owed something Uh and that they've got to put in about 20 years of complaining before they can get to the point where they can start creating. Okay. It's so true. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not finished my complaining yet, you know? Well, you haven't done anything yet. You know, I mean, you spend the first 30 years of your life complaining, you know, well, you know, you haven't really done anything yet, you know, you're just complaining. And the other thing is complaining for 30 years gets to be a habit. It does. And it makes it very difficult to shift into creative mode. You know, we actually talk, well, actually, you've said this in one of our conversations, complain or create. Mm -hmm. Like you have a choice to do one or the other. What I love, especially since I have two, you know, kids in my family, 18 and 21, where I'm like, okay, let's start creating sooner. Complain never if you can. But I love that, that freedom that that gives you because it's almost like with no entitlement attitude, no one owed you anything, but also you don't owe anything. And that ties a little bit, Dan, you talk about, you know, people talk about giving back a little bit. It's interesting because there's an implied obligation there, but you're like, let's talk about it as just giving. Yeah. 
Can you talk about that for a moment? Because I think it, it definitely ties into this. Yeah, well, it's very, very interesting. And I have just noticed this, that the people who most took responsibility for their own life at the earliest point in their life and then created great enterprise. I'll just use the word enterprise here. They created something new in the world that was valuable for people and a big, you know, very successful dynamic organization formed around them, which hired, created enormous number of great jobs for people. And then the person who started all this becomes very successful, well-known and wealthy. Okay. And then the people in another part of society who didn't take responsibility for themselves, didn't create anything in their life, and were totally supported by what already existed, get to the point and say, you wealthy person, successful person, now you have to give back for everything that you've been given. And I said, they didn't take anything. They didn't take anything, you know? And I said, with really successful people who've done it on a good basis, that, you know, they've done it honestly, they've done it ethically, that, you know, it's legal and it's valuable. So that's what I call, you know, creating in a very, very positive way. I think that they naturally reach the point where they've got so much for themselves that they have a desire to share it. They have a desire to include other people in on their success and include other people in on their prosperity. But that's their choice. You know, it's their choice. And they're under absolutely no obligation to do anything. Okay. Since they took total responsibility for themselves, you know, where others didn't, others expected to be taken responsibility for, those are the takers. For me, the people who made other people responsible for their success are the takers. But in the end, they're the least likely people to actually give back because they didn't create anything in the first place, you know. Mm -hmm. A new book arrived from Amazon that I'd ordered based on a recommendation from a client called How to Give Yourself a Raise by Napoleon Hill. Oh, yeah. And it, it's phenomenal. I just flicked through it last night. And Dan, it was so reminiscent of our conversation about American happiness. I cannot begin to tell you, but it's his interviews with uh, Andrew Carnegie. And oh, it's, yeah. it pretty much echoes everything you just said. He said, I'm going to give away my fortune in the way that does the most good and the least harm. And mm -hmm. we know about the Carnegie libraries and things like that. And it's the 17 principles of success. But that is, I mean, it's like an echo. That whole thing about giving versus giving back as though you've taken something where in fact you've created something. And mm -hmm. I think that distinction is really important. Have you taken, you know, you might've taken advantage of some circumstances, but you have created something out yeah. of that. And then out of that, there's a sense of abundance and generosity and giving. And there's just an... It's going to sound flaky, but there's an energetic difference between giving back and giving, mm -hmm. right? There's just a whole different level, I think, of consciousness. Yeah. And that's what I would rather. I'm totally into giving. Well, giving back implies that you took something, you know, and I said, well, look how successful you are, okay, you know, and all the advantages that you had. And I said, well, I mean, if you really want to do some research on this, you could notice that when I started, I was one of a million who had the same advantages. And of the million who had the same advantages 50 years ago, I'm at the top. And the vast majority of them didn't do anything with their advantages. 
So why am I being pointed out that I now have to give back simply because I did a good job and I was a successful job where they did nothing with their advantages? They should be taxed now for not developing their capabilities, you know? That's definitely a different different thought than current. I'm just saying, why is it that the people who have actually improved things the most, why are they the ones who are now most responsible for giving back what they gained from helping so many other people? They've already helped other people. It's very interesting right now, the wife of one of the greatest tech successes in the last 50 years inherited like $16 billion, okay? And now she's out to transform the world in such a way that someone like her husband who made $16 billion would not exist, okay? But she didn't create the $16 billion, you know, he did. And when he was, you know, I'm not going to say who it was, but he actually, while he had his corporation, had no charitable foundation And he was bitterly, bitterly, he says, you don't have a charitable foundation. And uh, he said, no, no. He said, we create technology that transforms the lives of millions of people. They're just better off because we create our technology. And we've got 40,000 employees. We created those jobs, those 40,000 jobs. And we pay enormous amounts of taxes, both in payroll taxes and, you know, and the sale of our products generates taxes. And, you know, we have to pay taxes, you know, wherever we are. And he says, we're just massively, massively productive and create maximum value in our life. Why should I have a charitable foundation? You know, but the moment that he died, then they took over and now they have this massive charitable foundation, you know. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a charitable foundation. I'm saying, but don't feel that you're obligated to have a charitable foundation. And I guess if you're going to have a charitable foundation, there's rules that you have to follow and you have to fill in the paperwork and you have to, you know, you're subject to, you know, certain kinds of scrutiny and accountability. Well, you can choose to do that, but I don't see how anybody's obligated to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the difference here is an obligation. If it comes out of a sense of generosity and abundance, it just feels better. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. It's a binary mindset, either entitlement or no entitlement, and different things come out of that way of approaching things. So thank you for sharing your axioms. I think a lot of entrepreneurs will resonate with this one. I'm sure people will be sharing it with others. It's like, oh, this is how I've been thinking. I've been trying to explain it. Mm-hmm. So thank you. And, and all the really practical questions about how people can reflect on their experience, I know will be great takeaways too. Thanks, Dan, as always, lots of insight and great perspectives on mindset. Thank you, Shannon.